Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Last spring, Catherine Kimbrell, an emergency physician who works in a department just north of Providence, Rhode Island, started to notice something very unusual about the patients that she was seeing. In the late spring, early summer, uh, we noticed a really sharp increase in the number of accidental opiate overdoses among our heroin-using population. Um, Typically, we see probably a couple of months in our department, um, and we saw a real sharp increase uh, in that number where we were seeing some weeks multiple opiate overdoses in a week. Welcome to another edition of Talks Talk, a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman. In this episode, we are going to be talking more to Dr. Kimbrell about these overdoses, and uh, then we'll hear more from Matt Legier and Molly Boyd at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. This episode is going to be covering a drug that has killed people in Rhode Island and Pennsylvania and appears to be spreading throughout the United States. As always, if you like what you hear on the show, you can respond to us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Check out our Twitter feed at TalksTalk and our Facebook page, where we'll be continuing to monitor uh, this story. Also, check us out on the iTunes store and feel free to drop a comment. That's often how other listeners find out about us. And now we'll go back to Catherine to find out more about this emerging drug of abuse. What you just described, every single emergency physician listening has an instant image of what that means um, because, sadly, it becomes a fairly regular part of the job. But so somebody comes in, often uh, via ambulance, um, sometimes being dropped off, not horribly responsive, um, uh, relatively apneic, low respiratory rate, kind of poor color. And, and instantly, you often look at them and know that, okay, this is, this is probably an opiate overdose. I know what I'm probably going to do. And we, and we tend to pull out the Narcan. And realistically, as your day goes, those patients are some of the sadder, but some of the simpler patients in some respects. I think it's not necessarily you go home at the end of a shift and say, you know, that's the patient that really stuck with me because the encounter can last just a few minutes. Um, But you were saying that you noticed uh, an increased number of them. Yeah, we definitely did. Um, And most of these patients appear to be um, accidental overdoses, not not intentional drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, in our community, um, our EMS services tend to use Narcan fairly liberally. So many of these patients um, would come, be coming in actually with Narcan already having been having been given. That can always be interesting too, because uh, you wake the sleeping giant when when you give uh, a little too much Narcan to the. Uh, you, usually, what we're talking about when we're talking about these accidental overdoses. Um, is it's not usually somebody who accidentally uh, takes an opiate, but somebody who accidentally overdoses on an opiate that they regularly take and uh, overdoes it. And so uh, then you reverse somebody who's dependent, and, and they, they tend to be grumpy. They, they typically are not very happy with you, absolutely. You know, typically, as you're describing, um, many of 
of the patients, at least whom I've treated, and they'll wake up, come around, and they'll be very irritable, very um, <laughs> unhappy clients, if you will. It's amazing how many times I've had overdose of status post Narcan then try to find out AMA. I guess that's another discussion. Yes. But what I was finding is that in these patients, um, most of whom have received two milligrams of Narcan from our EMS services, but many of our, our patients were not uh, they never reached that grumpy state. They they were oftentimes still pretty lethargic. Um, I used quite a few nasal cannulas during that time for patients who seemed to be incompletely reversed with a two milligram dose of Narcan. And a couple of patients I ended up giving an additional additional Narcan to. And once or twice we even put patients on Narcan drugs. Okay, yeah, and and just just a just a shout out for people that are that are curious about that. My general practice tends to be if you have to give a second dose of Narcan, you just start the drip, and you very usually end up giving about two thirds of what your effective dose was. But there's no there's no magic number. But um, yeah, and so that was that's pretty unusual. I mean, I mean, because usually with these patients, if they are chronic opioid um, dependent patients, you're just you're trying to give them just a whiff of Narcan, just enough Narcan to reverse the respiratory depression. And for the vast majority of of heroin patients, a minimal amount of Narcan is used. In some of the original papers and some some of the uh, textbook chapters, you'll actually see 0.04 milligrams used um, or 0.4, depending on where you're reading. So if you give two, if you give 20 times that and they're still not really fully reversed, then that was kind of surprising. And did you find that anyone else noticed this? Was this something that was remarked upon? Yeah, this is something that my colleagues noticed as well. And, you know, we had some discussions about this among the other ER physicians and our, our really excellent nurse manager, who was one of the first to pick up on this trend. It seems like it's often the nurse managers that, that save us from ourselves and pick <laughs> up on those trends, because you're just trying to get through a shift, and then somebody goes, you know, we've been seeing a lot of these lately, and you say, oh, yeah, you're right. So, and it, sound, it, it seems like there was a eureka moment, sort of, when the Rhode Island Department of Health sent out, uh, sent out a notice. Yeah, it was it, it was really sort of validating when we received a notice about a um, a novel opiate, the acetylfentanyl, suspected was being cut cut in with the local heroin. Yeah, and then it was eureka. So what we've been seeing is real, and I feel like that happens in EM a lot. Sometimes we pick up on things. We know that something is off. We've got a busy shift, so we're not gonna you know stop everything to dive into it. And then we get some information. And in this particular case, it was in June that the Rhode Island Department of Health put out a warning that they had seen a number of cases, ultimately fourteen deaths from um, acetylfentanyl. And then the um, Rhode Island Medical Examiner's Office, in concert with the Department of Health and ultimately the CDC, sort of put out this all points bulletin to try to get more information. And and the interesting thing about it is I, I thought it was fantastic that you as a clinician actually picked up that something was going wrong or something that was something was different with your overdose population because ultimately what triggered the alarm was not overdoses in the emergency department, but it was a bunch of corpses that came in to the medical examiner's office and ended up, um, the screening test was positive for fentanyl, but it, there wasn't fentanyl. And then they ultimately figured out that there was this novel, ultra potent uh, fentanyl analog, uh, acetyl fentanyl, which is much more potent and much more likely to cause respiratory depression and death. And as with any epidemic, different fields see things differently. And they were seeing the forensic side of it. And, and you were really seeing the, the clinical effect in the, in the community. So what, what happened then? What do you think it seems like things settle down. 
They did. So really, I think by June, we were really on the downward slope of this trend. I, I would say that most of these cases we saw were in, more in the late spring. Um, and and it, it really just seemed to go away. And we, you know, basically went back to a, a baseline of our sort of, you know, periodic accidental heroin overdoses. And our users also had noticed that as well. <clears throat> you know, I certainly had patients who, after being reversed, that there was something up with this um, heroin, I think it's that fentanyl stuff. Um, so it wasn't just the physicians who were aware of this, it was our, our drug using population as well. Well, that was a great interview with Catherine. Uh, I want to thank her for bringing the, the clinical aspect of, of what's going on in terms of the acetyl fentanyl drug overdose epidemic and, and drug use epidemic. But I wanted to use this opportunity to talk to Matt Legere and Molly Boyd over at CDC about what they do. They were instrumental in helping to investigate the epidemic, and I think they provide some nice insight into sort of boots-on-the-ground investigation and what went on in Rhode Island. Here's my interview with Matt Legere and Molly Boyd. Hi. Hi, Matt. So uh, essentially, I wanted to touch base with you because back, I think it started back in March is when things started to happen, but it sort of hit the radar in May. I uh, I am uh, of New England and started hearing about these sort of overdose deaths uh, with uh, news reports coming out of the uh, Rhode Island Department of Health um, there. And then I heard that CDC was getting involved. And then actually in August, there was this great publication in the MMWR kind of summarizing uh, this cluster of overdose deaths in Rhode Island and ultimately Pennsylvania. And I just wanted to touch base with you to talk to you actually about the case, because it's it's really fascinating. And I don't think it's something that we generally hear about all that often. Sure. I think that people generally get a sense for CDC investigating infectious illnesses. And, you know, you get the sense of people hopping on a helicopter and, you know, going to Africa or South America to investigate this. But I didn't I don't think people realize the uh, toxicologic investigation side of CDC. And so I was just curious, because you two are not in uh, Pennsylvania or Rhode Island, how did, you, uh, how did you first hear about this? So, yeah, I think you're right. The CDC does get a lot more of attention on the infectious disease side of things. But there are other, other centers here in CDC, like the National Center for Environmental Health and the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry. Sorry. Uh, and then even chronic diseases. And so we maybe don't get as many calls as often for outbreaks, but uh, there is a lot of research and a lot of a lot of environmental exposures that, that do occur uh, that we get involved in. So, But we first heard about it directly from Rhode Island because they had been doing some investigating internally themselves and, and were, were kind of confused about what was going on and weren't sure what they were dealing with at first. Um, and then once they had a little better idea of, of what maybe they were dealing with, they, they realized that they, they wanted some help. And so they contacted the National Center for Environmental Health. There's a group called the Health Studies Branch here that works with kind of unknown environmental toxins. And that's what this was really at the beginning. They, they, they weren't sure what it was, and they were still doing the laboratory investigation and uh, reached out to us. And I think once they had identified it as likely or preliminarily identified as acetyl fentanyl, they might have contacted uh, the health studies branch because they had been involved previously with fentanyl, fentanyl-contaminated heroin overdose back uh, in the 2000s. And so there was a history that health studies branch had with this uh, in this field. Okay. Yeah. And that's, 
And so there's been a prior relationship between between the two agencies, between the state agency and the essentially the federal agency. And I think most of our listeners will be very familiar with some of those fentanyl outbreaks. We still occasionally see them essentially. The fentanyl adulterated heroin and it was in Philadelphia. And I remember it was when I was in Michigan, there were a number of overdose deaths from it where people get more than they expect. And because it's fentanyl, there's tends to be a lot more respiratory depression and thus a lot of a lot of deaths. And I guess at that point, CDC had gotten involved. So this was sort of a similar similar scenario where they didn't know what it was, but there was something going on with Rhode Island's drug users. Exactly. And I think, I think in this case, um, CDC was more involved from the beginning of the investigation in Rhode Island rather than the one that was the fentanyl one, which involved, I think, over a thousand deaths that it saw. It was kind of primarily in Chicago and Michigan and Detroit and Philadelphia. CDC got involved a little more after the fact and was doing retroactive case finding and, and looking through charts, whereas this time there had been, uh, when we got the call, there had been 10 suspected acetyl fentanyl overdose deaths, and we then traveled within a, a week or so or five days that traveled up to Rhode Island after the you know they made the official request for an FBA aid uh, to get involved in investigating kind of the, the toxicology of it all and also the, the epidemiologic components of who is dying from acetyl fentanyl. Okay. And so it was nice, nice out front in front of the outbreak rather than, than further on down the road. Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, take a lovely, lovely visit to the state of Rhode Island. Um, um, and so, so you were, so you were notified and a formal request was made. And then, uh, so it sounds like a team or uh, some people went up from CDC actually to investigate in Rhode Island. That's right. So typically, I guess, with what, what are, you know, epi aids or epidemiological assistance to states, uh, there's, there's usually an, an EIS officer, the Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship Program. It's usually led by an EIS officer. And then depending on the, the nature of the investigation and the outbreak, other people are added on. Frequently, there's a staff person from CDC. Uh, in this case, there wasn't because there, we were just kind of unsure of the need going into the field. But because of the, the toxicological nature of it, um, a medical toxicology fellow, Molly Boyd, went with me uh, for the investigation. When an FEA is requested, there are kind of specific objectives that are detailed in the request uh, and in, in the approval here. And so first and foremost, we wanted to establish if this was an actual outbreak because they had some numbers and some some idea of what was going on with the uh, with illicit drug overdose, overdose deaths in Rhode Island historically, but they weren't sure. They hadn't done kind of an, uh, an analysis to determine if this was above baseline number of deaths that typically happen. And so uh, our first objective was to establish, one, whether or not this was an outbreak. Uh, and then the second objective was to characterize the acetylfentanyl overdose deaths in any number of ways, kind of clinically, toxicologically, and epidemiologically, to investigate the characteristics of the persons that were dying, how they were dying, and see if that could lead to any information that would be valuable for, for public health outreach and interventions. So we were fortunate that in a recent effort in Rhode Island, their chief medical examiner, Dr. Christina Stanley, she had made great efforts to try to reclassify or add a level of more specific classification for types of overdose deaths or types of types of deaths in Rhode Island. One was 
they classified the death as either accidental or not accidental or intentional, but then further in from further specifying accidental deaths, she had created uh, many new categories on whether it was prescription-related or, you know, motor vehicle. And then even from there, they had some categories on whether it was, if it was a drug overdose or a medical um, accidental death, they had whether it was related to prescription drugs, illicit drugs, alcohol, or any combination of the three. And that really helped myself to kind of data mine and classify the acetyl fentanyl overdose deaths, which were, you know, they were illicit drugs, not prescription drugs, to look at those and to compare them to other overdose deaths historically to meet that first objective of uh, whether or not it was above the baseline number of overdose deaths. That was very helpful. Um, thanks, Matt, in terms of giving us information on kind of stepping into that. But so it, it sounds like from what I've, I've, from talking to Dr. Stanley and then just from from uh, looking over some of the reports. So Rhode Island typically gets a certain number of overdose deaths. Um, tragically, Rhode Island gets hit especially hard from the opioid abuse epidemic, um, including, as you mentioned, both diverted prescription medications, overused, actually prescribed medications, and then illicit substances, which including heroin and um, and fentanyl and derivatives. And so they know about how many deaths they would expect to get. It sounded like in this particular case, Dr. Stanley got on her desk far more overdose deaths than she would expect, which might have been an early screening that something was going on in Rhode Island. And then also it sounds like they sort of have a standard set of of uh, forensic screening tests that they do, starting with the ELISA screening test and then shifting to the GCMAS spec. And it sounds like at some point their ELISA screen was not matching what they would typically expect to get back on the confirmatory testing. And that triggered their knowledge that there might be that this wasn't just heroin and it wasn't just fentanyl. Did you know that when the request was made or was that something that sort of developed following um, the development of a case definition based on clinical findings? When they called us, they had preliminarily identified it as acetylfentanyl. And the reason I say preliminarily is because there was no chemical standard available, not understanding completely what the what their laboratory procedures were. We found out more details about that on the maybe the second day or the first day we were in the field the forensic toxicologists from the lab came and visited with us and explained their process and how they, like like you mentioned, they screen for a panel of 17 drugs of abuse with ELISA, and then anything that's positive, they follow up uh, with the GCMS spec. And so one of those is fentanyl that they screen for with ELISA, and that it was positive, and upon the GCMS spec testing, there was no fentanyl peaks found or no match with the fentanyl standard. And so, so they noticed these unusual peaks. And it was kind of, it was really the, the forensic toxicologist's due diligence to go and investigate further. They could have just checked a box for unknown or, or not really worried about it. But they were concerned because, you know, after one or two, I think they said, you know, they saw one or two and they thought maybe it was just a, maybe a laboratory error. But when they started to see four and five and six or more, you know, they started to see lots of these, then they were concerned that something was going on. And so this was all before we even got there, that they had looked through compound libraries and matched the the GC mass spec peaks to, like I said, preliminarily identify acetylfentanyl. And they, what they said, they were very pretty confident that that's what it was because I think it was a 98% match that the peaks had when they compared it with those compound libraries. 
so it sounds like and stepping in from I, I think this is the difficulty with having different agencies work together, especially given how diverse the U.S. is. I'm sure that when different teams go in the field, they encounter uh, uh, various levels of experience and procedures and protocols in different state departments of health and um, and medical examiner departments. So it sounds like in this particular case, Rhode Island had done a fair amount of, of some legwork and was concerned. And as you said, didn't just check a box, which is the danger whenever something becomes sort of rote or um, bureaucratic. But in this particular case, they actually realized that what they were doing was important and tried to look a little further. Right. And maybe, maybe Molly can talk a little bit more about what she has experienced in uh kind of like you said, the differences between states and, and jurisdictions on what type of toxicology testing is, that does go on. Yeah, Matt, I was actually pretty surprised um, to learn that the procedure followed by the Rhode Island State Health Department is not followed universally. I kind of expected that that kind of diligence was available. However, there's just not enough money in a lot of states to do the testing that they did. Some states or suspected overdose deaths only have four, five, six compounds, and the positives are not always followed up with GCMS. There's just, there just isn't enough money available. So this outbreak had happened in many other jurisdictions. They either wouldn't have been tested for fentanyl, or if they did test positive for fentanyl on ELISA, they never would have had the confirmation with the GCMS, and we never would have known that acetylfentanyl was behind the attack. Okay. Yeah. And that's unfortunately, and that becomes an issue too. I feel like sometimes people don't understand the importance of the death certificates they fill out bedside as a clinician, having to stop my job to fill that out gets very frustrating, but that becomes important because it feeds into statewide statistics and knowledge and, and the importance of the, of the medical examiners who I think a lot of people assume that they're just there to sort of examine the dead, but they don't realize that the point of that is to get information and to try to understand real real health um, implications for the living. And there have been a number of prior outbreaks that have been sort of triggered and alerted by by uh, forensic doctors. In this particular case, um, the extra due diligence was, was really helpful. So as the as the toxicologist on the team, Molly, so what, what then transpired? Um, well, we worked closely with the Rhode Island State Health Department, who also worked with the DEA to determine if there's any more of this drug on the street. And if this drug is a contaminant of, of, say, heroin, a contaminant of cocaine, or if the people were buying this particular substance and it was in its pure form. We didn't know if they knew it was acetylfentanyl. We didn't know if they knew it was fentanyl or if they were just taking heroin. I worked peripherally with them to determine what exactly this substance was and why people were taking it. Additionally, using the um, medical records, we tried to figure out exactly how they took it. Were they ingesting it? Were they smoking it? Were they snorting it? Trying to use whether there were track marks on their arm, whether there was drug paraphernalia found at the scene, and trying. And the DEA was uh, interviewing other people who may or may not have taken the drug to determine exactly how it was used, how it was distributed. Okay, so trying to get just sort of an overall picture. And even though I think we all sort of assume that everything is like the movies and there's a CSI scene where you're standing there surrounded by sort of 10 bodies, that this is much more of a, it's, I mean, you're reviewing uh, sort of the prior analysis that, that the forensic team has done. Yeah, I'm reviewing the forensic team analysis. Several of the patients had made it to the hospital, so we were able to go through their medical records, determine how much Narcan was used, if it was used, Rhode Island did have in place the availability for take-home Narcan, but that that is not wide. It has not been widely distributed. There was not a lot of availability for take-home Narcan, so none of these patients 
unfortunately, they didn't have um, Narcan to give to their friends when their friends went into respiratory distress. One of the interesting things that landed to the collaboration was really internally the fact that you know, Rhode Island is a smaller state, but physically the medical examiner's state office is in the same building as the state health laboratories and the forensic toxicologist laboratories. And so their communication, you know, within the state is much better than in other states where, you know, it might be in a different city entirely that you're sending samples to and where the the ME is versus the, the lab, and they just send a report, but it's weeks later, and then you become aware of it, whereas once they became aware of this, they were able to talk to each other face-to-face and really, you know, start identi- you know, look, looking out for new cases and become aware of it more quickly. Good point about, about Little Roadie. And it's something that we don't always think about when we talk about administrative departments and where things are and putting things in different cities and different campuses is just the benefit of just being able to go across the hall and say, hey, Jim, did you? that's just kind of weird. Let's chat about that. And then sort of getting more information. So um, that was definitely interesting. Yeah, kind of parallel to our investigation, there, was, there were obviously law enforcement investigations going on between Rhode Island law enforcement, working with the DEA, and working with the forensic toxicologists. And so some of that we heard about, but it was kind of hearsay or, or not official of whether or not people knew that's what they were buying. And you know, we suspect most of them were likely injecting it, but again, we weren't sure. But one of the things that we, that we kind of pointed to is the fact that heroin only showed up in approximately maybe a quarter or a third of the toxicology results besides the fentanyl, And so we didn't think that it was mixed with heroin. Otherwise, we would have seen heroin, you know, in, in almost all of them in their toxicology results. And so, you know, we're leaning more towards the fact that it was more pure or fentanyl alone that people were buying and consuming. You know, whether or not they were aware of what it was or how potent it was, we're not sure. One of the hypotheses is that the reason that that the deaths kind of trailed off after March. There was only, there was 10 in March, one in April, and then three in uh, May. And there hasn't been any in May in Rhode Island since then. But one of the, the hypotheses is that, you know, the, the users of opioids, of illicit opioids like heroin or, or in this case, maybe acetylfentanyl, uh, was that they, they learned that what, what the source was of this more potent opioid and they were adjusting their, their doses, uh, lear- you know, kind of the learning curve so that they were protecting themselves. But maybe no one was aware of how potent it was initially, and that's what led to, to many of the, of the deaths. That's a great point. And this is, I guess, the thing that you have to ask in general about an outbreak like this is illicit drug use has been going on in Rhode Island for some time, as, as in every state. We know that there are a certain number of users. We know that there's a certain potency, and you would expect a certain number of overdose deaths. If there's an increase in overdose deaths, is it that there's a new substance that people aren't used to? Is it that they're using it in a different way? And I think in this particular case, there was some, as, as was already mentioned, there was some evaluation to try and understand, were they shooting? Um, uh, were they snorting? How, how are they exposing themselves to it? And so what was contributing to the deaths? And then as with any sort of um, exposure like this, people adjust their drug using habits. Um, I guess this happened, I mean, this happens in other areas too, where people think that they're using MDMA and they'll get PMA, which is both very different and much more potent. 
um, on a microgram per milligram basis. And then so you have to realize what you're taking. And then the drug the drug community tries to adjust their habits to sort of reduce their dosage to, to minimize harms. And so that, that's a good point that maybe that's what happened, because it does seem like this all of a sudden disappeared. It also looked like there was some in legal investigation. And I think there was recently a prosecution of um, of the alleged source of, of the substance in this particular case. Right. And I'm not sure if you've seen recently in Rhode Island, there was a press release, I think it was in October, that uh, from the Department of Health again in Rhode Island, that they had found now acetylfentanyl in pill form. Yes. And so I'm not sure what if that's led to, you know, different administration, if they're, or if they're crushing it to snort or inject or do something with it, or if they're actually taking it in pill form. We're not sure, but uh, it, you know they have confirmed that it is being sold in pill form, so it's ever changing and adapting. Then also, you, it sounds like Pennsylvania sort of occurred, and there was uh, there was a moving target. There were other things going on at the same time. We were concerned that it was going on in other states, and that you know maybe they weren't testing for it with an ELISA and or GCMS spec, and so that was one of the reasons there was first kind of an epi release uh, by Rhode Island when we were in the field to make other states aware of it. But at the time, no standard existed. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a way to confirm acetylfentanyl. You could certainly do GCMS spec and try to identify the peaks, uh, maybe manually or with a compound library, but there's no standard. But then when the MMWR was released later, actually before that, we released something through what's called the Health Advisory Network, which has a broader a broader distribution than EPIX that goes out to a broader audience. And, and that was really to make public health agencies and laboratories around the country aware of what was going on. Dr. Stanley released it through uh, NAMES, the National Association of Medical Examiners. Also, Lori Ogilvy, the forensic toxicologist in Rhode Island, published or, or wrote an article for uh, SOFT, the Society of Forensic Toxicologists, their newsletter. So we were trying to get the word out in as many venues as possible. So that's when and then we, then we run several uh, national um, conference calls afterwards, one that was hosted by the, the Office of National Drug Control Policy in the White House, and then the SAMHSA. There were phone calls with them to try to kind of bring situational awareness to the right people, and that's when we heard about kind of a cluster of uh, more overdoses in uh in Pennsylvania, another one in New York, and we were encouraging them to follow up with, you know, with this confirmatory testing, and that led eventually to the, the confirmation in Pennsylvania. And then recently, in October, there were one or two deaths, I think, in New Orleans, which there were reports from New Orleans that I think there have been five confirmed acetylfentanyl deaths. So it was really a part of trying to trying to spread the word and make sure that the right public health, medical, and inner coroners toxicologists, people were aware of what was going on. It's what you allude to, actually, I think, is a whole network of communication and interactions and um, both informal communications via grabbing each other and chatting with each other and dropping emails and then more formal sort of um, regular 
telephone calls and group calls and um, and and uh, public advisories that go on that we don't even really know about. Society of Forensic Toxicology is a great group, and I've um, I, I once uh, spoke to them, and it's it's interesting how we tend to divide everything up into pieces, and so you have you'll have medical toxicologists, and you have uh, you know forensic toxicologists, you might have clinical toxicologists, and then and if you talk to the layman, you do say toxicologists, they just assume that everyone has uh, beakers and and sort of boils things, and then um, when you actually sort of boil it down. You, you find out that forensic toxicology being much more of um, kind of a sample analysis field is very different than what Molly or I might do in, in clinical practice. And um, sometimes one group knows about something, knows about the acetylfentanyl deaths or knows from their testing what they're seeing, and the other group has no idea. And, and so fostering communication between those different groups um, can be very hard but, but very important. That's a really good point. And especially with acetylfentanyl at this point, we're starting to learn a lot more about the epidemiology. And as a result of the outbreak, we do have standards. NMS um, now offers testing for it. But we really don't know anything about the toxicokinetics, the toxicodynamics of this compound. Um, during our investigation, I did a literature search of all compounds that might be called acetylfentanyl. And really, there's little or no data on the compound. There's a, a couple of articles from the 1960s. Our estimates of its potency are basically based on rat studies from the 60s, as well as discussions with um, the DEA and their discussions with confidential informants, how much they were using to get high, things like that. Yeah, it's scary how little we know. And I think you bring up an excellent point. So, and this seems to be, and I don't know, it seems like it's a, it's a uh, increasing theme is with, with the advent of more designer drugs and more synthetic drugs that are coming out, um, that we really don't have any knowledge of, any clinical knowledge of. You'll, you'll hear about a new drug coming out and you try to search the literature for it and you end up with a rat study from 1963. And then, and then what we've already discussed here in terms of a lot of state health agencies um, and, and law enforcement agencies, I mean, every, every agency always wants more funding and needs more funding. And so having, having limited means to investigate this, it's, it seems like we're going to see more of this, not less. And the complexity of some of these synthetic drugs becomes very difficult to investigate. I mean, it sounds like you're probably going to get more calls in the future. Yeah, I, I just gave a presentation here at the CDC to other people that are EIS officers and, you know, and any staff here. And, and that was one of my kind of conclusions is that, unfortunately, this is one of many that's happened over the last few decades. There was China White and there was there were other things going on in the 70s and 80s that led to the analog law. Mm -hmm. And but it hasn't really taken care of it. They they pop up and they go away and they come up in different regions and they're different compounds and it's really hard to to know everything about them as they as they come up and it doesn't seem like you know this problem isn't going away. Yeah, and and I I think um I mean what you rightly identified is that it it becomes a point where as a as a locality you can identify a problem. And, and react in different ways, it's probably going to be more common that people call CDC for just more advanced um, testing and, and maybe some epidemiological rigor, which um, it sounds like, I mean, one of the first things that you guys did when you stepped in was not necessarily sort of shaking everything up, um, but actually just trying to sit down to go back to develop an appropriate case definition and to kind of, as, you, as you've already said, data
data mine um, to get a better sense of things. I think most of us always imagine that there's a big map on a wall somewhere with pins in it. Uh, and I, well, I remember at this particular outbreak, there was discussion about, you know, cases in northern Rhode Island versus southern Rhode Island. And then there's this cluster in northern Rhode Island. And it's odd that there are these cases in southern Rhode Island. And, and then there were theories about, well, maybe they got in a car, maybe they went to a party. And so um, maybe that's how it moved. And I mean, you can drive across Rhode Island in about 45 minutes to an hour. Or so, so to break it up like that is very interesting. How can, um, how can we as healthcare providers do a better job in the future to work with EIS? How can we help you help us? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things, a lot of, a lot of what comes to EIS, um, like in this case, you know, it's usually the Department of Public Health who is making the official request or is noticing a problem, uh, whether it's infectious or environmental or, or chronic disease, but frequently they are alerted by the clinician. Like you said, the people in Rhode Island, the clinicians were, were seeing these maybe clusters of more people in the ER with this overdose that were need that was needing more can. You know, if that information flows more freely or more directly uh, to the departments of health, that can be something that can help them to initiate an investigation or to look into something and then, you know, and then as needed contact the CDC. If not, clinicians can certainly though call here, specifically toxicologists. There are medical toxicologists here with with a lot of background and expertise. And so just on a consultation, on a consult for a certain case or through the, through the poison center, there are avenues. It doesn't always have to be uh, an epi with EIS, but there can be, you know, more clinical consults going on. Molly can tell you about the, uh, the Medical Toxicology Fellowship Program here. Yeah, through um, the Emory CDC Medical Toxicology Fellowship, not only do we work at Emory with a traditional poison center-based um, and hospital-based first year, we have the second year where we're stationed in one of the departments of CDC or ATSDR. Here in Atlanta, we have one of the highest concentrations of medical toxicologists in the country because of the CDC. There's a, a lot of us that work here in various different divisions or organizations. And we do take consults from clinicians. We do take consults from the general public about medical toxicology issues, especially those pertaining to environmental health. You mentioned that you get some from the public and some from clinicians. I find in general that the referrals I get from the public sometimes can be very different uh, than the ones I get from from healthcare providers. Although every so often you you know you get someone who swears that their spouse is poisoning them um, with heavy metals, and then they tell you the story, and you say, you know, actually they they might be that that might actually be true. I would I once had a clinic where we recommended getting out of the house. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, Matt, to follow up, but we, you know we would encourage all physicians, but, you know, specifically medical toxicologists that are in the ER setting and working with poison control centers to collaborate with local and state public health officials because you guys are on the front lines and might might be the first ones to identify or to see something suspicious like this that could be a broader problem than just one kind of case. But And then, you know, things would work through public health officials to then engage with the CDC with medical toxicology fellows here or the EIS program as needed for, for follow-up um, consultations or investigations. I couldn't agree with you, we, with you more. I think, I think sometimes so often the big thing on a busy shift, 
um, when you, when you've got a bunch of patients, you'll see something and it'll trigger and you say, Oh yeah, that looks interesting. But the last thing, the last thing anyone really wants to do is stop and look up a phone number and then call and then leave a message. And I, and, um, it's so vitally important, but sometimes our infrastructure can be so difficult to overcome and our, just our, um, our inertia to just kind of keep moving forward onto the next patient. Uh, and so it's kind of a testament when people do step back and kind of set the alarm to bring in, bring in reinforcements and find out more. And it seems like it's also so good to kind of meet people and talk to people and form relationships where you can drop an email. So really just you would kind of recommend that we just kind of be watchful and, and wary and, and send back information. Yeah, one of the first things that they did here in the health studies branch, actually, because they do work with the poison centers nationally, is they did a query and did an analysis of the recent data from the poison centers to see if there have been, if there have been an increase in reports of opioid-related overdoses to the poison center. But like you said, they're not always reported. It's difficult to pick up the phone and call because of the, the inertia to get on to the next patient. And so. I'm not saying that every single case should be reported, but that's just one of the sources of data that we look at initially to see if there are ticks within states or regions for certain reports uh, to the poison center. And that data is analyzed here at CDC in real time. If there is a, an increase in, say, opioid overdoses in a certain area, a phone call gets made within 24 hours, and that can be investigated, but that data has to come to the poison centers to get uploaded to NPDES for us to realize what's going on. The poison centers serve a nice a nice monitoring function, highlight things. Um, there's the I mean, there's the poison center database. There's the toxic registry. There's a bunch of of, of different sources of information. And um, I I think more most recently we've seen a similar epidemic. We had the synthetic cathinone um, sort of the bath salt epidemic, and there were a ton of calls to poison centers. I think some of those have actually dropped off, and it's unclear if it's actually that the use has gone down or if clinicians have just become more quote unquote familiar with the drug and so don't feel the need to call. And and unfortunately with especially with opioid overdoses. We do, um, because they can be so common, we sometimes refrain from calling because it's just another case. And I do, I try to encourage people, uh, clinicians, I say, you know, even even if you know how to treat it, call the poison center because it's not just, I think people assume that it's just an advice line and they don't realize that it actually becomes a very important um, a way of monitoring actual outbreaks um, for a whole host of um, exposures. Well, I want to... Um, I want to thank you both for taking time out to uh, to be on the show and to talk to our audience about kind of what you do, and uh, it's very exciting. Thank you both, Matt and Molly. Thanks. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. And that does it for another episode of Talkstock. I know that these acetylfentanyl cases are really just one part of the ongoing explosion in overdose deaths, largely from opioids, and I'm sure that we'll be talking about that more as things progress. There's not a person in the country that this issue doesn't affect, and each time we lose someone, it brings up questions about how best to approach it. Just recently, the president of the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, Robert Hoffman, called for more access to naloxone as one solution and called on some of the other national medical and toxicology groups to weigh in. I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about that uh, as things develop. (music) 
As always, if you like what you hear, you can respond to us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org or check us out on our Twitter feed at TalksTalk where we continue to follow the story or check out our Facebook page. And uh, please uh, feel free to check us out in the iTunes store and feel free to drop us a review or a comment. That's how others find out about us. Talks Talk is a production of the University of Massachusetts Department of Emergency Medicine and Division of Toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.